Welcome to New York Institute of Technology's podcast, The Scope. Produced by the College of Osteopathic Medicine, our episodes focus on the medical school experience and how it helps shape future physicians. Learn about exciting new health and wellness initiatives, cutting-edge medical research and technology, and how to effectively navigate medical school. We are excited to have you join us. Good afternoon and welcome to the SCOPE podcast. Today our conversation will focus on the positive benefits of incorporating personal creative writing into the medical school experience and beyond. We are very fortunate to have guests from three states joining us today. We have uh, guests in Arkansas, two of our students are there, student physician Spencer Heath and student physician Seth Jones. We are also joined by Dr. Ted Spivak, who is a career emergency medicine physician who has been involved in residency training and someone, I quote, who takes a great interest in people. And in New York, I am very pleased to have NYIT Vice President for Health Sciences and Medical Affairs and the Dean of the College of Osteopathic Medicine, Dr. Jerry Ballantyne. And finally, our medical student from New York, student physician Max Cohen. Thank you very much for joining us today. So I'd like to start the conversation with you, Dr. Ballantyne. Can you tell me a little bit about your experiences with Dr. Spivak and how you met? Well, uh, Ted and I actually met twice. We officially met when Ted hired me for my first job uh, in the Bronx as an emergency physician. And then as we worked together there, we figured out that we had actually worked a shift together Yes, earlier when I was a medical student, and I think Ted was probably a senior resident or a pediatric emergency medicine fellow, uh, in an emergency department in Philadelphia, because we were sharing a patient experience and we realized this was the same patient we were talking about. So Ted uh, hired me for my first uh, official position and through his support and mentorship, I was able to uh, become a residency director and he really influenced me during my career. I, I still look back fondly on many, many uh, shifts together uh, in the emergency department and also many great teaching rounds with our medical students and our residents. Dr. Spivak, what was your opinion when you first met Dr. Ballantyne? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, th I think I knew quite early we were kind of kindred spirits. We were interested in a lot of the same things. Uh, we have the same sense of humor in many ways. And I knew right away we were going to be a good team working together. Dr. Spivak, I've had the pleasure of reading numerous stories that you've written. Can you tell us how your interest in writing began and how that related to your decision to enter the medical profession? Well, before I was a doctor, I was an English teacher. And I was a hopeful, creative writer. I was looking for something interesting to write about because my life didn't seem that interesting at the time. And I, through a friend of a friend, I met um, an intern in Philadelphia who invited me to join him on rounds on a couple of overnight shifts because he said there were lots of interesting things happening in the hospital. So I thought that might be a great opportunity for, for me to find some things to write about. But ironically, it made me interested in pursuing a career in medicine. So things kind of turned around. I went from being writer to physician. And as time has gone on now, I'm kind of transitioning back from physician to writer. Do you find that you write your stories in real time or do you do them from memory? 
So many of my colleagues have written things down that they they would like to write or talk about, but I've never done that. All of my writing comes from memory. And I think that works for me because in time, things that start as events actually turn around in your mind, you turn them over in your mind, and they become stories rather than just events. You write a great deal about your career experiences. How did that help you in the aftersight? You're saying that you, you don't write or haven't written in real time. So when you reflect, what does that do for you? It helps me to put um, life, career into context. I've always thought that the emergency department is kind of a microcosm of the world. Very interesting things happen that really reflect what's going on outside of medicine as well as inside. And that kind of duality and joining together in my stories is one of the things that I like to try to do. I'd like to jump in with our medical student panelists at this moment. Seth, how do you feel as a medical student who enjoys writing? How does that help you in your daily activities? So that really allows me to look back through all the activities that I've been able to do in the past. Uh, so currently in my situation as a OMS2, I do a lot of studying and reading books and not a lot of patient contact. Um, and so that reflection going back through the good that I can do for people and how that has impacted me as well as the patients has really helped me uh, stay motivated throughout the studies and then also look forward to third and fourth year where I'll be interacting with patients on a more personal level. And how about a question from New York, Max, what is your feeling on this? How has your creative writing helped you in, in your medical training? I really started writing many years ago and I feel like once I started my medical training it sort of took a kind of a boost where I started writing more and I think a lot of that came from starting to feel more entering into medical school and then starting to interact with patients there's a lot of that emotional component that goes into those experiences and when I'm able to get a pen down on paper and release those emotions and speak about what it is that I'm going through even if it means that no one else is reading it but I at least can go back to that and reflect upon that and compare notes to how I'm feeling weeks later, months later, or years later, uh, the creative writing aspect has really helped me just put everything into perspective and really uh, draw out my emotion. Dr. Spivak, which stories do you choose to tell? How do you make that determination? Well, I think experience in medicine that I've had that I find to be intriguing, troubling, humorous, symbolic, moving, all those various categories are the kinds of stories that have stuck in my mind over the years. And I kind of revisit them mentally, and when the time seems right, I sit down and write a story about them. The stories are always true, but you know, over time and through my imagination, they're never exactly as how they, they've happened, but they're essentially true. Do you share your stories with others? Well, about three years ago, I joined a writing group, all, kind, all different kinds of writers, 
and they've they've helped me with my writing and I've done a number of open mics and readings around Cape Cod. So I've shared a bunch of those stories uh, with audiences. Okay, I have a question for Arkansas related to this. Spencer, you have an interesting path because you had a prior career in medicine. You were a nurse, and I would like to know what inspired you to write about your experiences. So Dr. Spivak talked about how he likes to revisit things later because it helps him to kind of process and turn it into into a story rather than something that's immediately experiential. And for me, the, the therapeutic aspect that I found in some of my writing was kind of by taking the opposite approach. And if, I, if something particularly impactful happened to me at work uh, or something that was difficult to process, uh, sometimes it, it helped me to put that down on paper rather than waiting. So that really helped me to sometimes process things that were, that were complex or that I, I didn't necessarily understand uh, how I was going to deal with things with them long term. It seems to me that we have two different ways in which people are recording their writings just in this group. Dr. Spivak has indicated that he wrote from memory. I'm hearing from you that you're writing almost as it's happening. And I, I did have a prior conversation with you, Max, where you were indicating that you also found that you were writing pretty much at the same time. Mm -hmm. What did it do for you, Dr. Spivak, when you were choosing your writings and I would assume shared them with your writing group? What did you learn when time had passed and you went back and revisited those events? And what did that do for you internally? What it taught me was what I thought was specific and pertaining only to medicine or, or emergency medicine really was pertaining to the the world at large, certainly our country at large, that the kinds of events and issues that interested me and intrigued me in the emergency department were mirrored by the events that were going on outside. So people who had no experience in medicine were very interested in the events that took place and really could identify and relate to them. Um, so it added a sort of universality to my whole experience in medicine. Thank you. And, and Max, let me ask you that same question. I definitely agree that most of the times, like we had spoken about, I like to write in real time because I feel like I am able to put down the raw emotion that I was feeling at the moment in the exact manner that I experienced it. So that when I do revisit, and that is something that I like to do, when I do revisit in the future, I get that opportunity to feel again what was going on in that moment and to experience it and remember it as if it was right out of a movie scene. In the emergency room, I had that opportunity to witness things that I thought that I'd only seen in movies. And to be able to see that and write it down and then revisit it later on, it kind of helped me to navigate my emotions and just see the growth from where I was then to where I am now. Dr. Ballantyne, the College of Osteopathic Medicine recently held a new event uh, for student physicians called Humanism in Medicine Week. And this was designed to do just that, emphasize the humanism in medicine and in the medical school training experience. Can you give me an idea of what inspired you to do that and how you feel about this 
opportunity for people to express themselves creatively with writing in medicine? Thank you, Susan. Before I answer that question, let's just quickly look at what we just heard, because really what we saw here is what medical education is all about. We have on one side, we have the teacher, somebody like Dr. Spivak, who has a lifelong experience, who now puts it down to teach us, as students, as physicians, as lay people, about medicine, about his experiences. And then on the other side, we have students who are confronted for the first time for very traumatic events. They see somebody die for the first time. They see somebody suffer for the first time. They see pain and how they are dealing with it. And I think it's very important, and that now leads to the second part of your question, or the second part of my answer to your question, how do we deal with it, right? So these students found an outlet. They are writing. They're writing down their concerns, their struggles, their, what upsets them. Well, that's much better than going to the local bar and having a beer, right? Because that's the other way to let out, you know, to use drugs, to uh, be depressed, to do other outlets. They found a creative outlet to help them deal with a very, very stressful environment, a very stressful event. To be introduced into the profession of medicine is not that easy. So mm -hmm. that's what, what added it. Now, the reason humanism in medicine is so important is partially for that reason that we acknowledge that there are many different ways that we can be creative and it's okay to be creative. But really the reason I'm pushing humanism in medicine, I put this week together and I'm uh, doing other events like that is because medicine is fundamentally changing over the next 10 years, right? Artificial intelligence will change. Uh, the, the changes that uh, Ted and I saw over our career was in many ways minimal, right? We went from paper records to electronic medical records and you know, maybe a couple new medications and some surgical techniques. But the change that artificial intelligence will bring the next 10 years and that we can't really predict yet requires for me to train students in opening their mind. So when they're confronted with this new environment, they'll be able to accept it, deal with it, and improve their practice. So humanism in medicine, that week that we're celebrating, the, the wor writing workshops, uh, the anatomy group on sketching, all of those are just meant to help students, one, digest what they're learning, but more importantly, prepare them for a future that we're not, we can't define yet. Ted and my future, when we graduated from medical school, it was very clear what medicine would look like in five, ten years. Yeah, I mean, maybe now we have MRIs instead of CAT scanners or stuff like that, but there was no big, big change. The changes coming are fundamental to medicine, and that will require students to be prepared for it. I wanted to just respond to that, Dr. Ballantyne, and say that you know, it was interesting how you put that into perspective between the medical educator and the student. I also wanted to add that for me as a medical student, definitely writing things down on paper and these emotions and these stories has 1000% helped me uh, grapple with that emotion and those experiences. But in another way, uh, something that I've noticed from spending time with my family where there are no physicians in the family or spending time in my local community with people who have no connection with physicians and or medical students and these experiences, uh, one thing that I wanted to do with my writing as well is to share these moments with the lay people because I found that most people don't actually understand what medical training is, what it's like to be a medical student, what it's like to be an attending physician. And through this, I've gotten tremendous feedback on people's ability to 
understand what we actually go through on a day-to-day -day basis. On the topic of feedback, I think this would be a good time to let our listeners hear some of the samples of our creative writing. Dr. Spivak, you have a story called The Pedagogue and the Turtle, and I know that our listeners would enjoy hearing this. Would you like to share that with us? I would very much like to. Wait till Spivak gets a load of this, I overhear from the residence lounge adjacent to my office, followed by the sound of high-fiving and laughter. He'll probably chastise us about some infection control violation. Maybe, but it's all for patient care, right? Customer satisfaction? Isn't that what he's always preaching? More laughter. I am kind of intrigued. Although I have a stern reputation as ED and residency program director, I do have a covert sense of humor, even an appreciation of the shenanigans of residents. I am sure my residents would be surprised at a few of the stunts I was involved in way back when. This must be a good one, because all of the residents gathered for morning teaching rounds, along with rotating interns and students, are darting their eyes between me and a large plastic basin placed conspicuously on the counter across one of the patient bays. I see it immediately, but pretend not to notice it, ignoring the curious scratching noises coming from within. Teaching rounds begin. Teaching rounds are a tradition in medicine tracing back to William Osler, the late 19th century physician who famously urged that training of physicians be moved from the classroom to bedside. The whole group of us, students, interns, residents, and faculty going off shift from the overnight and those coming on to take over care in the morning move from stretcher to stretcher to discuss each patient's chief complaint, exam, workup, and progress thus far. Each patient is presented by last night's team of caregivers. The order and manner of the presentation are scripted and important. It is the model these future doctors will follow the rest of their careers. Once the patient is presented, the caregivers are questioned closely about their findings, and one question leads to another, more or less employing the Socratic method, and then discussions move on from there. I am in absolute agreement with Osler in that I view teaching rounds as an unparalleled educational opportunity. Students and younger students and younger residents often have a different view. They anticipate teaching rounds with emotions ranging from loathing to outright fear. We have had more than one student pass out right at the bedside when a question is directed at him or her. Rounds move along. We transition from stretcher to stretcher until arriving at the bedside of the patient located across from the aforementioned basin. The resident begins her presentation in the usual manner. 45-year-old male, found on the street, intoxicated, arrived boarded and collared via EMS, obvious head wound. But then she veers off script, but with no change in the customary intonation. When we approach the patient, a large reptilian head jetted out from his coat pocket. Chief in our differential diagnosis was that of a snake, but physical examination proved it to be a turtle, which we removed from the patient's pocket and are now holding in a large basin. We have done a complete evaluation of the patient, but we are awaiting your expertise as to the matter of the turtle. I move towards the basin and peer in, and I am aware of the rare, barely suppressed laughter escaping from the group. What I see is a rather large turtle crawling around the basin amidst bits of burger, ends of pizza crust, and grains of rice, leftover from last night's food deliveries. 
only in New York, I think. The turtle appears interested, but the food remains untouched. I move back to the bedside, and without commenting on the basin or its contents, I ask the resident to please continue. When she concludes, I begin the questioning. What were your concerns with this patient? What kind of a head bleed? What role might alcohol play? Can you describe expected findings on the CT scan? How might the bridging veins be involved? In general, these questions are asked of the students first. If the students cannot answer them, we move up the line from junior resident to senior resident. By the time residents become seniors, they have most likely heard these questions on rounds 100 times. But that's the whole idea. Repetio esmator estudiorum. Repetition is the mother of learning. Still, I keep a few questions in my back pocket, ones even the senior residents have not heard before. These questions are meant to challenge them, to reinforce that they still have much to learn, and okay, occasionally to remind them that they still don't know as much as their teacher. The team has done well thus far. They have answered all my questions correctly. It is time for me to address the turtle issue, so I pull some questions from my back pocket. Why has this turtle not eaten the food you've given it? First silence, then because it's not its natural food, one resident offers tentatively. I shake my head slowly, indicating an incorrect answer. What kind of a turtle is it? More silence. I continue. Did you notice the yellow stripes on both sides of the turtle's head? Turn it over and you will find more colorful markings on the ventral side of its carapace. This is a painted turtle, I say, and painted turtles are pretty much omnivores, so they would probably eat at least some of what you threw into the basin. But painted turtles must have a water level above their heads in order to chew their food and eat it. To that end, I suggest adding about three inches of water to your basin. All the talk has apparently stirred the patient. He opens his eyes, looks around, and cries out, Donde esta mi tortuga? One of the residents quickly snatches the basin from the counter and carries it to the patient, who gently lifts the turtle out of the water and begins to stroke the top of its head. I don't go anywhere without my turtle, he says, now speaking to us mostly in English. I had him since, I had him since he was muy pequeño, his thumb and index finger indicating about an inch in size. I carry him around in my pocket. Es mi amigo, he says, smiling and still stroking the turtle. We finish rounds. Arrangements are made to discharge the patient. He dresses and thanks us, smiling as he leaves, his head made conspicuous by the large surrounding turban-like bandage. Just as the exit doors open, the turtle cranes its neck and stares back at us from the comfort of its coat pocket to say thank you, perhaps, before heading down the steep hill back to the streets of the Bronx. If only that turtle could fill out a satisfaction survey, I muse aloud, I'll bet we would score well. That, End of story. That was a great story, a, a really, really entertaining and great story. I'd like to ask the medical students in Arkansas do you have a little feedback on that? Well, I, I think it's great because, uh, like Dr. Spivak said, the emergency department tends to be a microcosm of the world at large. Life is cyclical and these experiences come back around. I've, I personally have lived this. I've pulled a python out of a trauma patient's uh, pants pocket before. I hear this story and I go, man, this is, you know, I thought that was a wild story. It's something never, how does this ever happen anywhere? And it turns out, no, 
other people have pocket reptiles in the emergency department. So the student is going to top the teacher's story. He's, he's going to trump my turtle with his python. I think that's great. I think these are terrific stories. And we are fortunate today to have two other stories that we're going to share that come from different viewpoints in the medical profession. And now I'm going to ask Max Cohen if he would mind sharing his story about an event that occurred in the ER. Yes, of course. Uh, before I do start that, though, uh, I just want to say, Dr. Spivak, I really appreciated the comedy uh, that you incorporated into that. So I'll begin mine Thank now. Thank you. Thump, 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 thump. The sound of my exhausted heels hitting the ground was all I could hear. Thoughts and thumps. Pieces of me are still left there at the trauma bay. Slowly, I'll need to pick them up and reshape the parts of me that shattered. Parts I'm still not sure I can quite identify. It was Friday, September 21st, 2018, at approximately 4 p.m. My phone buzzed. Gunshots on a basketball court, the notification on my phone read. Moments later, the call came in from EMS, and the red phone roared through the halls of the ER. 16-year-old male, GSW to the head. Resuscitation in progress, four minutes out, EMS told the charge nurse. Surgeons, attendings, residents, nurses, techs, anesthesia, blood bank, crash cart, respiratory, and me the medical student, all prepared to play God. You want airway, you want vitals, pointing to me. You CPR, you get a line in. Everyone else keep quiet and listen to the history from EMS, the ER docs directed so smoothly. EMS charged in with a stretcher, CPR in progress, delivering the history and transferring the patient. We took to our directives and acted swiftly with little thought. CPR continued. Roll him over on three, one, two, Three, no exit wounds, someone called out. With every pump of the chest, it appeared the external appearance worsened, with little done to save this kid internally. Blood and brain matter splurged out the bullet hole, mouth, nose, and ears. Bedside ultrasound confirmed, no cardiac activity. Time of death, 16.14 p.m., announced the attending. I spent the next half hour cleaning the body to prepare for the family. We wiped the face and unveiled the innocence of a teenager shot dead while playing basketball in the park. I tied his legs together and then his arms so we can easily get a body bag under. I put a sheet over his head and moved his stretcher into a private room, awaiting the family's arrival. When the family finally arrived, we took them into another private room to reveal their son's condition. The attending physician began to explain the state of which their son came into the hospital until the father cut him short. He's alive, right? Where is he? I want to see him. He demanded as he turned toward the door to exit in hopes his son would be waiting for him on the other side. I'm sorry to inform you, your son died. Put bluntly, as we are taught to deliver this sort of news, to leave no doubts. The mother and father fell to the ground. Dad banged on the floor with his hand as he screamed, a sound that penetrated our hearts sharper than any weapon ever could. Mom took to a corner with pain so visible, I wondered how she'd ever recover. Dad then sprang up and shouted, it's not true. He's alive, he's alive, he's alive. My son is alive, show me my son, he's alive. With tears now flowing continuously down his face. As soon as they entered the room, I heard a cry I thought I'd never recover from. Dad called out his son's name to speak to him, to wake up, to come back. Words of the Bible were shouted. Jesus called upon to resurrect the dead and the name of an innocent 16-year-old boy repeatedly stated. I wanted to cry, but what right did I have to cry? Slowly, we left the room and called the priest to console the family. We, the medical team, turned to each other to share a moment without words spoken 
and then marched back into the trauma bay to clean up and prepare for our next patient. Is this what it feels like to be numb? Am I numb? I thought as I turned to leave shortly after. The truth is, I don't know what I was feeling. I am still unsure what parts of me broke down that day. When I will recover, if I will recover, if I should recover, or what recovering really means. All I can say for certain is this, that I will never be the same. My hopes are that it will be for the better. Thank you very much, Max. Dr. Ballantyne, I, I would pose this question to you. And Dr. Spivak, you are both uh, emergency medicine physicians by trade. Hearing this story from a medical student, how does that make you feel being in the teacher's role and having had the experience, as you were discussing before? You brought up an, an interesting point that there are many choices one can make to deal with this type of experience. And as a physician in emergency medicine, this could happen every day and probably does. I think the first thing is as a teacher is to acknowledge that it affects everyone, right? You don't want to, is want to isolate a student uh, as was done in the past often, right? Oh, you know, you, the tough guys, th this doesn't affect you. It affects everyone the first time we see someone die, the second time we see someone die, the 50th time we see someone die when uh, a parent comes in, when a son comes in. So I think to acknowledge that to our students, our juniors, to say it's okay, I as your role model, let's say, or as, as your senior, understand it, it's happened to me in the past, and we need to learn to live with it somehow. You know, in the past, I think the teaching was you ignore it, right? So 30 years ago, a physician would just ignore it. No, we are, we are above that. We should not feel compassion, empathy, or sorrow, and so forth. But I think that certainly is not the way to go. I think it's acknowledging it and then giving the students even time early on, uh, or the residents time early on to say, you know what? Just like in the story, was hinted a little bit, why don't we take 30 seconds? Why don't we take a minute and just go into another room and acknowledge that this is very traumatic for everyone involved. So uh, I, I, I think that's why these stories are so good, because they remind us, so somebody like myself who has not gone through this in a while, it reminds me of my experiences and says, yeah, I need to make sure that we teach this, that we help them. Thank you. Dr. Spivak, do you have anything you would like to add? Much appreciated in that story was not only the reflection of what the student is feeling, but his empathy with the parents, which I think is very, very important. And I'm glad, I'm glad that he expressed that as, as well, because sometimes we can get wrapped up in our, our own emotions that we ignore what's happening outside to the family. So I, I think that's crucial as well. And I will say, I remember one of the first patients I lost, it was a young man, about 17 years old. And I had a great deal of difficulty accepting that. In fact, I seriously gave, gave consideration to giving up emergency medicine right then. I thought, I, I, I just can't. I can't take this emotionally. And one of my teachers sat down with me for quite a long time, I would say a couple of hours, and kind of talked me through it and encouraged me to continue. And I'm very grateful that he did that. Spencer, you have also a story that you would like to share with us that directly relates to your interaction with a patient and how that affected you. Would you read that for us? 
I'm an ICU and emergency float nurse, so I travel almost daily between different treatment areas. This week, I was assigned to the trauma ICU, where I was to care for a young man only two years my senior, deep in a prolonged course of treatment for a grim case of leukemia. He found out a couple weeks back that he was ineligible for a bone marrow transplant, so he got drunk and wrapped his car around a tree in an unfortunate and unsuccessful attempt at ending life on his own terms. When I joined the team this week, it had been almost two full weeks since his admission. He had improved substantially from his injuries, but had clearly still made a down payment on the proverbial farm. His hollow eyes loomed from above his two thin cheeks as he watched me putter around his room. We agreed on a good schedule for his pain medication, and we stuck to it as best we could. I made small talk with him and his sweet mother in the usual way. I really liked them. They were kind people and a pleasure to work with. His nasogastric tube twitched gently as the pump dutifully provided him with that ever-present maudlin shade of high-protein khaki. I try to avoid feelings of pity for my patients as I prefer to think them in more humanizing, less patriarchal terms, but watching this young man slowly die was breaking my heart. There was an extended family meeting yesterday wherein the patient let us know in his breathy, can't clear my own secretions, monosyllabic speech, that he would like to go home on hospice on Monday. This was obviously a difficult choice and he cried a lot afterward. I held his hand for a bit while his mom comforted him with kind words. Later on, I took the time giving him a bath and a thorough hot shave while we watched some inane Discovery Channel show about grumpy gold prospectors. I was pleased to see the same unit come up on my assignment app this morning and even happier to see that I had my young friend back. He tipped an imaginary hat to me when I walked, knocked on his window during morning report. <clears throat> he tipped an imaginary hat to me when I knocked on his window during morning report, a frivolous movement that I knew cost him a precious effort. He had a banner day considering the circumstances and his family was excited to see him be so alert and communicative after such a grueling hospital stay. At about two o'clock, while his brother was visiting, I came in to check on him and administer some medications. He mouthed something to me. As usual, I had to lean in closely with my ear nearly brushing his lips to hear his hoarse, congested voice, and I had to ask him to repeat himself a couple of times. Finally, I was able to make out the message. Did you eat? This young man, in constant discomfort and mental distress, who had every reason to focus on himself and his own woes, knew that I was very busy with my patient load and wanted to know if I had had the opportunity to take a lunch break. I had to choke back tears as I thanked him for his concern and told him that, yes, I had indeed gotten a break. There isn't much in this job that touches a nerve anymore, but that did. I would pose this final question to our group. What do you hope as the writer that others will get out of reading your works? It really does depend on my audience. And, and I sometimes write different stories aimed at different audiences. For example, The Pedagogue and the Turtle, I aimed, I think, mostly at medical students to give them a, a, a kind of an idea of what it's going to be like once they're interns and residents and to let them know that while there's very serious stuff going on, there's some humor, there's a lot of enjoyment in it as well, and they really shouldn't fear what's going to happen. Uh, other stories are directed at lay people, again, as was mentioned before, to try to give them a better understanding of what happens in an emergency department and what are the emotions that are going on in the doctor as well as in the patients. So it does depend on my audience, but those are the kinds of things I, I kind of think of. Thank you for that. 
And at this time, I would like to thank all of our guests for joining us today, uh, your insights, experiences, and, and most importantly, sharing your personal works. Each one of the stories that we shared today came from a different angle in the medical profession. As a layperson, feel enormously blessed to be able to experience your work through your own eyes and through your own writings. Based on today's discussion, it's very clear that tapping into the creative nature of oneself through personal writing, especially when you are a medical professional, can produce many positive benefits, both internally for the writer as well as the people that read these stories. I thank you again for being a part of our discussion today. My pleasure. Happy to join you.